0: So we've heard people talk about the good old days. And there are certainly some elements that would be worthy of revisiting rather than the way things currently are in our society. We certainly have a a faster-paced society with less family time and more media access. These things haven't exactly produced In fact, they haven't produced more contentment with all of the circulating things that are available to us. Spiritually, however, a believer never wants to go back. We don't want to go back. What we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What we are, we are alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. Where we were, what we were, where we are, who we are. Sinners, separate from God, alienated from the promises, without hope, without God, in the world, headed for eternal damnation. Who we are? God's people. United with Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus' righteousness is added. Eternal life is guaranteed. We are God's children. The Spirit of God dwells within us. We would never want to go back because of who we are in Christ. We've been studying through the middle section of the book of Romans, we have come to understand that we have come to a reign of grace. Take a look at the end of Romans chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have come to a reign of grace. Our sin and our guilt have been removed. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man, Jesus, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we've got... We have received righteousness. Our guilt and our sin has been removed. Jesus' righteousness has been added. Where our sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. Chapter 5 and verse 20, which we just read. This led Paul to ask a question at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin Should we continue in a lifestyle of sin that grace may abound? And his resounding answer, his emphatic answer, his pointed answer is, God forbid. That's the King James Version. Ours says, by no means, the Greek expression is, meganoita, let it never be. It should never be said, That we should see God's increased grace at our increased sin and say, this is a good idea. I will sin more so God's grace can increase more. No way. Not on your life. It's not how it's going to happen. We died to sin through our union with Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3 of Romans 6 tells us. Verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? He's letting us know that we have been united together with Christ. We have union. And so, because of that union, we've died to sin. Sin no longer grips us. He tells us in verse 4 that we should walk in newness of life. That is the call for the believer we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life our union with Jesus Christ guarantees our future resurrection that's what verse 5 tells us look at verse 5 for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall what does it say certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his our union with Christ guarantees our future resurrection. In verse 6, we recognize this we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verses 7 through 9 reiterate these concepts very clearly. Verse 10 tells us we've been made alive to God. Look at verse 10. For the death that He died, Jesus, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Well, this seems like it's talking about Jesus. Well, it is. But He's told us that we've been united together with Him. We have a resurrection like His. We are to walk in newness of life. So the implication there is that we have been brought to life. We have been made alive to God as the Lord Jesus has been made alive. Verse Verses 11, 12, and 13 offer to us the commands of the first half of the chapter. The commands. Verse 11, he says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if to, to summarize what verse 11 tells us, know that you're no longer enslaved to sin, but you're alive to God. We have to know this. That is important for us to understand as a believer, united with Christ, I have been made alive. Sin has no right to enslave me. But verse, thir- uh, verse 12 lets us know that there's a possibility that I can yield myself to an old ruler. Verse 12, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not let sin enslave you." But slavery's come to an end. Yes, it has no right to rule over you. That doesn't mean you can't go back and bow down. Have you bowed? This last week, have you bowed down to that that slave master of sin? Have you allowed the passions of your own sinful flesh to rule over you? You disobeyed, verse 12. God says, don't let sin reign over your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. That's not for you. Verse 13 offers us a solution. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That word instrument means actually weapon, as a weapon for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments or Instruments of war for righteousness. God tells you and I to present ourselves to God. To recognize that I can present myself as an instrument for unrighteousness, but I should present myself as an instrument for righteousness as I present myself to God. And then he concludes verse 14, uh, this section with verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You are not under the law it's it doesn't rule over you you're under grace and grace does rule over you if you were to boil verses 1 through 14 down into one sentence it might read like this the believer cannot live a lifestyle of sin because through union with Jesus Christ the tyrannical rule of sin has been overthrown that is a thought worthy of our consideration in our meditation a believer cannot live a lifestyle of sin talking about continuing in sin cannot live a lifestyle of sin because through union with jesus christ the tyrannical rule of sin has been overthrown as we move to the second half of romans chapter six we could summarize the next section with this sentence Through the fruitful reign of grace, believers have become servants of God from the heart, being enabled to demonstrate the righteous obedience associated with eternal life. Now, that's a mouthful. You see the contrasts? Verses 1 through 14 is talking about how we've been set free from sin. Verses fifteen to twenty-three, we have been set free to righteousness. Or, if you want to look at it, really the, the, the imagery is slave master. In verses one through fourteen, the rulership of sinful of sin's power has been broken, and in verses fifteen through twenty-three, the rulership of God, our master has been enacted from slavery to sin to slavery to God. It's not so much slavery to freedom. We're exchanging one master for another. We've exchanged one master, sin, that leads to more and more lawlessness and death. For another master that removes our sin, grants us righteousness, enables more and more righteousness that leads to eternal life. Oh, this is a good deal. This is a really good deal. Anyone that participates in that deal, there are no losers in that deal. One master to another master. You and I were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to the law. We were multiplying sin. That's what chapter 5 was letting us know. But God intervened. He has broken the slavery and He has exceeded the multiplication of our sin with an abounding grace. This is what God has done. This is not just an abstract theological truth. This is a concrete and practical truth. And that's what we see as we come into the second half of Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 15. I'm going to read 15 to 23. The whole uh, rest of the chapter, the whole second half. Let's look beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin? He didn't say continue in sin. Are we to punctilier? Are we to sin right now, in this instant? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Same answer. By no means. Not on your life. No way, no how should we sin because the law doesn't restrain our sin anymore. He told us that, that's not even right. The law multiplied our sin, grace removes our sin and enables obedience. So we shouldn't sin because we're under grace rather than the law. The law multiplies sin. Grace meets that sin, eliminates that sin, and overcomes that sin by no means. Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the One whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, So now, here's a command, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Why would I do such a thing? For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. No righteousness happening. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The fruit was not good fruit, it was bad fruit. But now, verse 22, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, the fruit you have, leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages, the payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. That brothers and sisters in Christ is like a breath of fresh air. All week long, you've been inundated with whatever this world wants to throw at you and whatever you allowed in. And here you are this morning and this is what we get to look at. All the bad news pales into Oblivion in comparison to the grace that we have received. We want to look at this as the passage demonstrates uh, with two time frames. The way we were and the way we are. An old master and a new master. The way we were and the way we are. So we'll do this in bullet points. The way we were. We were subject to relentless demands of the law that revealed and multiplied our sin. We were subject to the relentless demands. The law is never satisfied. Relentless demands of the law that revealed our sin and multiplied our sin. Look, please, at verse 16. Do you not know that you... Oh, sorry we have to understand that he's comparing from verse 14 you're not under law but you're under grace okay that was the conclusion of the last section all right well because i'm not under the law but under grace should i sin should i sin because the law is not restraining my sin my my sinfulness anymore no no that's not how it works verse 16 do you not know that the to if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of that one Whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Look down at verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to sin righteous he's talking about the what what does the law do well we, we we know from earlier in the book of romans that it reveals our sin we know from galatians chapter 4 or 3 and 4 that it's our schoolmaster to bring us unto god it reveals our sin and then it it multiplies our sin he's going to get to that in chapter 7 well actually we, we read chapter 5 in verse 20 already where the law came in it, it increased trespasses you see that in verse 20 of chapter 5 Look at chapter 7 and verse 5. Chapter 7 and verse 5. I think I just said the wrong verse. Chapter 5 and verse 20 shows us that we revealed our sin, that the law revealed our sin. Chapter 7 and verse 5 says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, what does it say? Aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bring fruit for what? Death. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the same response. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So we see the law comes in and it reveals our sin and it multiplies our sin. Do you remember when you were enslaved to, sin, enslaved to sin? Do you remember before your salvation? It's like every turn. I can either do A, sin, or B, sin. Those were the options. Maybe C, sin. But it was never D, righteousness. Never. Our flesh never led us toward righteousness. What was it like? Well, take a look at Proverbs 23. I have a couple of Scripture passages before we get to Proverbs 23 that I want to remind you of. So start turning to Proverbs 23. And then while you're turning there, on the screens you'll see a couple of other passages of Scripture that are helping to remind us of what it's like to be enslaved to sin. In Proverbs 5.22... Solomon wrote, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. They trap him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Held fast. Bound up. Sin wants to bind us up. There's no other option here, brothers and sisters. This is the only way. You have to do this. Remember that? Remember when those days were there for you? Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's encouraging the church about our our call to be a light to the nations about us. And he makes this statement in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The Bible tells us that those passions inside of us are not helping us but hurting us. They're waging war against you. Your sinfulness, whatever your brand of sin is, is not helping you, but hurting you. We were enslaved. Sin wages war against the soul. And now in Proverbs 23, the the particular application of of Proverbs 23 is toward alcohol and what what it does. But we're talking about it in the realm of what sin is like and sin's rulership over us is like. Listen to what he says. Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. He says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? It's those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine do not look at the wine when it is red when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea like one who lies on the top of a mast you'll say they struck me you'll say but i was not hurt they beat me but I did not feel it. This is how intoxicated this person is. But when I shall awake, I must have another drink. So again, the specific usage here is about alcohol. But I, I think you can see its application to the sins that grip us. In the midst of it, you have a certain feeling, a certain way you feel about it. And then a little time goes by and you think... That wasn't really the right thing. It didn't really pay out the way I expected it to pay out. I kind of feel like I was sold a bill of goods. And yet we go to bed. And we wake up. And we give it a try again. Hey, why not? It seems alluring. It seems appealing. It has a promise of something that I want. This is what it's like to be enslaved to sin. You remember those days. And unfortunately, we probably remember uh, how we have fallen subject to that reign of sin, even though that decisive reign of sin has been broken. That reign of sin has decisively been broken. Head back to Romans chapter 6. What we're recognizing is we were, past tense, subject to the relentless demands of the law that revealed and multiplied our sin, that that sin wanted to rule over us, did rule over us, it wars against our soul, it doesn't have benefits, it sells us a bill of goods. What we were, not only that, is we were obedient slaves of sin. We were pretty good at being obedient to sin. When my sin told me, hey, I should go and do this, guess what I did? Post-haste. Here I am. I'm ready to do it. Oh, you want me to do that now? Huh, let's give it a shot. Let's, go, let's get on with it. Oh, oh, this thing now. Why? Why let anything deter me? Let's get on with it. Obedient slaves of sin. This is how Paul describes it. Verses 16 and 17 again. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the One whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death? Verse 17 now. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. You were, past tense. Look it down at verse 20 now. For when you were slaves of sin, you see that we were obedient slaves of sin. It called out in an order and we said, Yes, sir. You see that? That's the way we were. A little, little further in the text, our sin was ever compounding and a rightful source of shame. Verse 19 is really a telling. And an important verse. He says, I speak in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once, this is past tense, once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. He's going to use that, that past, what we were, to, to speak to a positive thing and a positive command in a moment. But he's giving us something very important to understand. Once you cater to sin, guess what it leads to the next step? Sin. Guess what it leads to the next step? Sin. Guess what it leads to the next step? Sin. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. It's almost it's that proverbial snowball rolling down a hill. It just keeps adding snow into the mix so that it gets bigger and more ferocious and more ugly look down at verses 20 and 21 again for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness what fruit are you getting at the time what fruit were you excuse me getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed the end of those things is death so the implication is it was getting no real fruit except the fruit of sin that leads to death and notice how he says that you were ashamed of those things you should you're now ashamed I find this to be an interesting statement, particularly in light of our current society. Believers recognize that there is shame associated with sinful practices because we recognize that sin is opposition to God. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Loving the world shows ourselves to be at odds with God. We recognize that, and that's shameful to us. We recognize that there are certain types of sin that produce more and more shame. And yet our society has a different feeling for those things. There are those who do not only feel that their sin should be shamed, they encourage others to not be ashamed of their sin as well. That's exactly how Paul ended Romans chapter 1. Listen to what he said. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice the same. We were slaves of sin. Those things were compounding and multiplying, and they should have brought us shame. We realize, as believers, that we've wasted enough time. We had wasted enough time. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. In verses 3 and following, listen to what he says For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account. They will give an account. To him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. So as we look at this passage, he's talking about the way we were. We were subject to sin. It was a compounding sin. We were ashamed. We are ashamed. We're ashamed of those things that we're involved in. He gives us another element of what we were. Our sin accrued a devastating debt. Our sin accrued a devastating debt. Eternal death. This is vitally important to understand. It's not like you've got the good doobie crowd and the bad doobie crowd, the goody two shoes crowd and the really raunchy crowd. Sin results in eternal judgment. That is a fact of Scripture. Paul already taught us about the outcome of an unrighteous life. Take a look at Romans chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. Those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and uh, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's take a look at another passage about this, Revelation chapter 14. It's essential to understand that sin does not result in an eternal dirt nap. You know what an eternal dirt nap is? That's what happens to the dog. The dog. The dog lives, the dog dies, it goes in the ground, and that's the end of it. Cat, mule, giraffe, elephant, rhinoceros, the dinosaurs of old, they die, that's the end. But when God talks about death, the wages of sin is death, that we had fruit that led to death, in our old nature, he's not talking about, okay, you'll die and that's the end of it. It's an eternal death. He implied that very clearly when he talked about fury and wrath in Romans chapter two. Well, we have this text in Revelation 14 to give us a sense of what eternal death is like. Verse nine. Revelation 14:9. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. There's a lot in this passage, but understand this. Worship something, someone other than God. Place your faith in someone other than Jesus Christ. Your sin that has accrued, your sin that has abounded, your sin that has controlled you, to Your sin that enslaves you doesn't result just in death. Everyone dies. It results in eternal death. And eternal death is not annihilation. Eternal death is judgment, condemnation, as represented here in Revelation 14. Are you thoroughly depressed? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would say I hope that you are petrified right now that ain't a joke die without christ and you will experience the just wrath of god poured out without mixture the full expression of god's anger against sin you will experience not for a day not for a week not for a month not for a year but forever it's a sobering reality and romans chapter 6 makes no small emphasis of this reality the wages of sin is death it's eternal death separate from the lord as the object of divine wrath against sin. Oh, but wait. Wait a second. Hang on. In Romans chapter 6, He's not calling you to believe. He's talking to believers. And He says, this is who you were. You were subject to sin. You were subject... To the law. The the law was multiplying your sin. It was causing your sin to abound. You were going into deeper and deeper horrible ways that brought shame to you. And yet, that sin that results in death is what you were. The chapter is about not just who you were. You were slaves of sin. It's about who you are. No longer slaves of sin no longer subject to the slavery of sin's demands, no longer needing to be obedient to sin, no longer suffering the wrath of God against your sin, because it's not the wages of sin is death and that's the end of the sentence. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ your Lord. And he doesn't say the wages of sin is death, and the wages of your righteous acts are eternal life. He says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You were enslaved to sin. Now you're enslaved to God. God has granted you righteousness and He's producing righteousness in you. And that righteousness is indicative of the eternal life that God has prepared for those who love Him. Head back to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. The way we are. The way we are. First of all, under this concept of the way we are, we are subjects to the bottomless, endless, matchless grace of God that produces obedience. We are subjects. We're under the Lordship, we're under grace. We are subject. To the bottomless, endless, matchless grace of God that produces obedience, now we don 't have time to turn to John chapter one, verses fourteen to, to eighteen, but uh, to sixteen, but let me remind you of its content verse fourteen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse sixteen talks about how grace has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, we've experienced His grace, and it's, it's a grace after grace. And the way that it's written, would, it's not like grace and then grace, and that's the end of the sentence. It's really written like this. It's grace and grace and grace like the waves of the sea. An endless supply of God's grace is coming in and the waves are breaking over us. See, the way we were, subject to sin, its demands never end. Now, we're subjects to grace and its supply never ends. God's supply of forgiveness, kindness, provision, favor, and empowerment is untappable. You cannot tap it out. You cannot come to the end. Oh, God ran out of grace today. Uh, I, I'm not sure what I'll do now. It's endless. This is what Paul told us at the end of Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Look, look back, you're in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. And actually it says, but caris to the o Karis-to-the-o. That's grace the God. Grace to God. But grace to God. Now he is in fact saying thanks, but he could have used a different word. And he chose, instead of using a different word to say thanks, he chose to use the word In its rare usage, grace very rarely means thanks. It does maybe eight times of its 150 uses or so. He used grace to help us to understand that this thanks to God is an expression of understanding how we have received rather than earned it was interesting, as he makes the comparison, we, we really have to finish it up because I took longer to do this than I intended. When, when you see these comparisons back and forth, particularly in verses 20 through 22, you see a real stark contrast. Verse 20: "When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit ready? were you getting? What fruit were you getting at the time from which? Excuse me. At that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things, the wages of those things, is death. But now that you have been set free from God, and now that you have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, the word there is echo, the fruit you have, the fruit you've received, you could say it like this, the fruit that you've been graced with, leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. We have become subjects to this bottomless grace. We have become obedient from the heart, verse 17 says. We don't have time to, to talk about that. So let's let, let me find a way to, to to wrap this up rather than press forward. <clears throat> Excuse me. The concept that Paul has conveyed is we were under the slavery of sin and it leads to death. We are, because we have been set free, because we have received from God, because we have been graced by God, we have received some other payment that we weren't worthy of. And that is the grace that results in righteousness, that's a declaration, and righteousness that comes into fruition in our lives. We're going to talk about that next week. The sanctification... The holiness that God produces in the life of the believer as his subjects. But what is this passage calling for? It tells us a lot about the Lord. It tells us a lot about God's activity. But what is it calling for? Verse 19 is the the hinge. And what he says is, the way that you used to yield yourself to sin that resulted in sin upon sin upon sin, as a believer that's been set free from sin? Here's what you and I should do. Here's what you and I must do. We must present ourselves to God. What should be the outcome of that in the way he has recorded it? Righteousness after righteousness after righteousness. Subject to sin leads to sin. Subject to God leads to righteousness. He's calling for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ to live out in real life the wonderful grace that He has worked into us. His saving, rescuing work tells us, my old master has been taken away, but I have a new master. That new master gives. That new master supplies. The fruit is good, and the end is eternal life. We need we need by God's grace to demonstrate this. Now, if sin still masters you and you, don't, you haven't experienced what it's like to see God set you free from that, there's only one way to be rescued from the master of sin and it's to repent of your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. There is no 12-step program that can take away your sin and provide you with eternal righteousness. You need your sin forgiven. You need God to rescue you. You need the reign of sin to be broken. You need the salvation offered to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. When that rule is ended, it's essential to present yourselves to God. It's essential for us. The rule of sin's over, but the rule of God is eternal and it results in profitable living let's pray together father we need you we need you to change us and work in us we need you to bring out to clarity in our lives the righteousness that you have worked into us through the, our union with jesus christ and we pray that you'd help us to present ourselves to you as those that are alive from the dead